Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that you open up our hearts. We know that a lot of us are sitting here, maybe sitting here with our minds elsewhere, with our hearts troubled, wondering. And the last thing we want to um, endure is to sit and listen for the next few minutes to your word. But we know these are deceptions of the enemy. So we pray that by the power of your spirit that you would set our hearts free, set our minds at ease to be able to hear you speak to us and reveal yourself to us through the living word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So once again, congratulations to Kiki and Daniela. The stars may fall, but God's promise will stand and be fulfilled. This is um, a quotation from J.I. Parker. Now, you don't know J.I. Parker. Don't worry about him. He's gone to be with Jesus. Christian man, a theologian, who has now gone to be with Jesus. So, when you come to the book of Exodus, and let me remind us that we are beginning our journey as a church. It's going to take us months as we talk about knowing and walking with God from the book of Exodus. So, Exodus is going to show us something about God and what it means to walk with him. And this is the first one. This is the first of many series that are to come. And the book of Exodus, like any other part of the Bible, you know, people say that the Bible is the manual God gave to us. If you build a car, you get a manual to operate the car. And so God gave us a manual to know how to operate the human being. Don't, don't, don't believe that. There's some truth in it, but that's not the case. The Bible actually reveals to us God. God's words, God's actions put together will reveal God to us in the Bible. So primarily, the Bible is about God. It's not about us. And because it is about God, when you get to know God, then you understand the human being and you understand our conditions in the world. And in Exodus, we are told that God has a purpose. God has a purpose. God has a purpose. The world is not random. God has a purpose, and he's working out that purpose, and we see that in Exodus. And then he tells the people of Israel later. Later, he's going to tell them, this is my purpose in Exodus. Indeed, this is my purpose in the whole wide world. Chapter 6. Don't, don't turn to it. Verse 6 to 8, this is God speaking. Therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people. I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with a lifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So this is the summary from the Lord about Exodus. And you see how many times I am, I am the Lord, I will, I will. Who is the center here? It is not the Israelites. It is God. 
So if you want to understand God in the whole of the Bible, but in this case, in Exodus, keep your mind on God, then you will be able to flow from there to the Israelites and to Jesus and then to us. So what is God saying here in Exodus? What he said to the Israelites, he is saying to us now in Jesus. Let me put it in my own words, what he's saying to them. He's saying to them that I am the Lord, the covenant God. I made a covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, with Jacob, your forefathers. I will keep it. I am the Lord who saved you from slavery in Egypt. And ultimately, any form of slavery, slavery, slavery in Kwasum to Boni, to Obronsam, and to Yankasa. Slavery to sin and to the devil and to my own sinful nature. I save you. I will set you free. I will redeem you by my mighty power. I'll redeem you through judgment. As I judge, I bring redemption at the same time. And that is what we see in the cross, isn't it? The cross is a representation of both salvation and judgment at the same time. So that you will know me, relationship. You will know me as your Lord, as your Savior, who keeps his promises to bring you into the new creation, to bring you to the promised land. So where are we in the Bible? Okay, it's a, it's a question you should ask. We are in Exodus. And where are we in Exodus? We are in chapter 1. Now, the first word in Exodus chapter 1, the very first word, you won't see it in English. The very first word is and. And, A-N-D. And, correct, what you must say? And, you know what I mean? say? And, we see, you know. And, our faith. We need to see it. And, that's the first word. What it means is that whatever has happened in Genesis, Exodus is a continuation of it. The story is continuing from Genesis. So what is happening? Let's get what is happening. What is happening? First of all, let's look at the first, the first corner of it. Exodus chapter 1 from verse 1 to verse 7. All that it is telling us is this. God keeps his promises. God is not like a human being. Not that human beings, we always not want to keep our promises. But sometimes we make promises, we fall sick, sometimes the electricity goes out, things happen, we die, all kinds of things. No, no, no. God is constant. He keeps his promises. And the story begins, look at it in verse 1. It begins by saying that uh, Israel came to the land and Jacob. Why is he mentioning Jacob? Of course, Jacob is their great-grandfather. But... He's mentioning Jacob because Jacob is one of those to whom God repeated the promises. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. So now Israel is in the land. They are in place, and we are told that there are about 70 of them. So if you take Jacob's sons, all of them, and all the children that they have had, you put them together, at this point, there are 70 of them. And then we are told that Joseph, Joseph was already in Egypt. So by the time Jacob and his family moved there, he was there already. But later on, Joseph and all that generation, the brothers and all these other people, the wives, they all died. That generation have, uh, died. And then something happened in verse 7. 
something interesting is happening. From 70 people, we are told that the people were fruitful. The people were giving birth. They were increasing in number. They increased in number greatly. We are not told the number, but Bible says it was great. Multitude. They grew exceedingly strong. And then they filled the land. They filled the land like locusts. The people were like that. They had filled the whole place. And in fact, even the enemies, the enemy, Pharaoh. Now, we don't know Pharaoh's actual name. Pharaoh is a title. It's like the way somebody would say Ochenhine or Otunfu or something like that. The Pharaoh, verse 9, he said that there are too many of these people, too many of them, and they are too mighty. Verse 10, too. Look at it, verse 10. He says that the more you have, they just multiply. Whatever you do, they just multiply. And then verse 12, they multiply and spread everywhere. The people have increased. What is going on here? What is going on about the repetition of fruitful multiplication, growth, growing in numbers? And so what is really happening? What is unsettling Pharaoh? We'll come to that. But what is going on? What is going on is you need to go back to Genesis. In Genesis, we are told in Genesis 1 that God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, Adam and Eve, and increase in number and fill the earth and subdue it. All right? God's purpose is always that God will have a people, his people, who will increase. God wants to see many people come to him, into his kingdom, through Christ, and they will increase and fill everywhere. Imaginable. And when sin came in, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in Genesis 3, we were wondering what is going to happen to this fill the earth thing. What is really going to go on? And then God steps in, as he does always in Genesis 12. And in Genesis 12, he takes this creation promise or creation purpose. And then he repeats it to Abraham. He says to Abraham, Abraham and then Abraham, you, he took him outside and then he said to them, you look up in the sky and count the stars. You count the stars of the heavens. If you can number them, so will be your descendant, your offspring. And so what you see here in Exodus, the very beginning, is God fulfilling this promise. His people are increasing in number. He is faithful. He doesn't make a promise and ask you, Sana Mekano, is that what I said? He knows his promise from the very beginning, before the beginning, and he is faithful to keep it. To keep it. So what God sets out to do, in and through his people, and for his people, for the sake of the world that he has created, what God purposed to do, what God has promised to do, he will do it. He will do it. So God is keeping his promises. But the interesting thing is that it's not according to our timetable, is it? How do we know that? We are told that all the generation of Joseph and all the brothers, they all died. Jacob has died. 
before that Isaac and Isaac's father, Abraham, before that, I am sure they would have loved to see the full fulfillment of this promise. But what God was doing is, is, is bigger than them. He fulfilled the promise to them, but the promise is not according to their own timetable and short lifespan. God is doing something great. And oftentimes, don't we think that? Well, we read something in scripture because we are so focused on ourselves. We forget that God has a bigger picture which is bigger than us. And he is fulfilling something. The good news is that we are a part of it. A small part of it, important part of it, but it's bigger than us. So God keeps his promises to his people. And you know what? Nothing can stop God in fulfilling his promise. Nothing. No one. Absolutely nothing. No political power. It may appear for a while that these people are suppressing and there is even no church in this area. Who told you that? Well, maybe for a time. God is going to fulfill it. And that leads to the second point that I want to make, that God keeps his promises despite opposition. God keeps his promises despite opposition. Verse 8 right through to verse 14, you're going to see that happening. When God is fulfilling his promises, you know what it does? It attracts problems. <laughs> it attracts problems. You would have thought that when God is blessing his people and they are multiplying, problem-free, problem-free Christianity is not Christianity in the Bible. And verse 10, Pharaoh, he sees what is happening among God's people, and out of fear, he makes a policy. He makes a policy to suppress them. It was a political move to suppress them in what God was doing. That is true of our nature. If you think Pharaoh is bad, Pharaoh is really, really bad. He's a representation of Satan. Yeah, that's true. But Pharaoh here is representing the very human nature. When human beings hear God and they see his work, they hear the good news, they hear the word of God, you know by our nature, our first reaction, we oppose it. That is a human nature. If God doesn't touch you, your reaction is always to fight God's word in your heart. Oppose it. And look for ways to maintain your independence. We think of ourselves. We fear what we might lose. God is calling me to this. If I calculate, I may, I may lose my independence. I may lose this relationship. I may lose something. And because we don't want to sort of lose face, we tend to, we tend to um, oppose God. Oh, you don't call it opposition to God. I know, I know. But we oppose God. Pharaoh, in many ways, reflects our own hearts. Oh, we don't want to submit to God. We don't like what he's doing. And so, listen to Pharaoh's reasons for um, opposing God. This is, this is Pharaoh. Maybe not you. So let's come back to Pharaoh. God's work is always unsettling. If you understand God's work, if you understand what God is doing to bring a people to himself, it's always unsettling. It's never according to our plan, and we, we hate it. We don't like it. So Pharaoh says to his people, come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Sankrofwe yampenyansa kwenbi. 
They will go away. They will leave the country. But that is exactly what God is doing. He wants them to leave the country. He wants them to leave Egypt. That is God's purpose. He calls out. That's the meaning of Exodus. He calls out his people to leave Egypt and then be God's people, be in God's place, under God's rule, and God's blessing, so there will be a blessing to the whole wide world. And that's the very thing that Pharaoh is opposing. I don't want them to leave the country. Subsequently, everything that is going to happen is what? I don't want them to go. God says, let them go and worship me. I don't want them to go. Okay, they can go, but they should live their livestock. God says, everything is going. If I redeem, I redeem completely. God will have the people to himself. Uh, but somebody is opposing the very, very purpose of God. The heart of the gospel is that God will call out a people to himself. And then the heart of Satan and human beings by our nature, because we are corrupted by sin through the deception of Satan, our heart and the world system that is opposed to God, it, it, they all come to the same thing. You will not call out the people for yourself. And God says there is no economic power in this world. There is no political uh, policy or hardness of any human heart that will stop God from fulfilling all his promises. Nothing will stop him. Here is a question. If God keeps his promises, and if God will fulfill all of them, all of them, if God will fulfill all his promises, not even one will be lost. As J.I. Parker said, the stars may fall, but God's promise will, promises will stand and be fulfilled. If, God, if this is God, the God who makes promises and fulfills them and nothing can oppose him, and he has his people to himself, how should we respond? How should we respond? How should you respond? I don't know whether you are a Christian. I don't mean you go to church. I don't, I, don't, I don't know whether you're trusting in Jesus that he died for you on the cross. He was raised to give you a new life. And therefore, your life now is lived in him. And for him, life is never the same. It's under the lordship of Jesus. That's a Christian. Or you are a non-Christian, which means that you are not in Jesus. You go to church all right, but you are not in Jesus. I don't know where you are. But how should we respond to God in this way? The answer is actually found in verse 15 to 21. As a third point, the fear of God. The fear of God is what we are talking about. Now, there is something that we are told. If you look at the story, and I, I hope you are looking into your Bible. If you look at these verses, there are these um, part of Pharaoh's policy to suppress the people from multiplying. He, 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 he has devised all kinds of things through slavery, hard labor, uh, so that when the men are tired, the men may not be able to, and therefore there will be no babies and all these other things. I don't know what he had in mind. Then he comes up with something else. We're going to kill all the male children that will be born, and with time we'll deplete their generation would deplete Israel. And so he tells the midwives, they were Hebrew midwives, another way of saying Israel, 
midwives then. And the midwives, I don't know whether their fingers were ultrasound fingers. You know, when you are pregnant, there's ultrasound to check what is going on, male, female, that sort of thing. Don't think it's only in our day. In their day, they had their own means of ultrasound. And so Pharaoh said to them, if you do your gymnastic ultrasound, and you know that it's a boy, kill it. Kill the boy. If it is a girl, let the girl live. It's a very smart policy to really suppress what God is doing. And one of such midwives was Shifra and Pur, these two women. And so they basically, they are told this, verse 17, the midwives, however, you know the instruction that they've been given. And uh, my main Kai will say, instruction ye, in some year, it's coming from the king, the pharaoh. You dare not go against it. Verse 17. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. How do you respond to a God who makes promises and ensure that the promises are fulfilled to the very, very dot? How do you respond? The fear of God. You've got to fear this God. What is the fear of God? The fear of God, you've got to understand it this way. The fear of God has to do with you either you want to please man or you want to please God. It has to do with that. And I'll explain a little bit more. The fear of God is pleasing man or pleasing God, making that choice. That will determine who you actually... Um, <laughs> who you actually fear. <laughs> who you believe is ultimately most powerful is the one... Imagine that... Um, your boss, the chief executive officer of your institution, give an, gives an instruction. And then you come in, and the national service person gives a, a contrary instruction. Who will you obey? The chief executive officer, who can change your sleeping place, as far as salary is concerned. So the fear of God has to do with that. Who do you want to please? And what is the reason behind that? And the fear of God actually shows itself up, and the women show it in courage, verse 18. So before the most threatening situation, the most powerful person, they, they just basically tell a story, isn't it? They, they just say, well, the Hebrew women, they give birth faster than the Egyptian women. That's even an insult to the Pharaoh. And that is why this happens. What they are telling us is, deep in their hearts, they believe whether or not we are told by implication who they believe is really in charge. Ultimately, who is in charge here? The Pharaoh or God? It is God. And his promises are unfolding. When opposition shows up, okay, in the Christian life, among the people of God, when opposition shows up because God is at work in us and through us and for us, the biggest temptation that we would have to face is fear. And fear will have only two sides. Either we fear God and therefore live in a certain way, or we fear man and therefore live in a certain way. 
But if you know that this God who makes promises, he said, let me give you an example of his promise, I will be with you. If you believe this promise, I will be with you, then you would rather fear him and honor him because you believe he is with me. So the fear of God also has to do with faith. The fear of God goes with faith in God. If you trust his promises, that he fulfills them, you fear him. That fear is not running away from him. It's running towards him with humility. This God, when he says it, he will do it. And therefore, in spite of, I'm going to stick with him. I'm going to stick with him. The point is this. God will always keep his promises to his people, to his children, to his church, to you who are in Christ. And nothing can stop it. Not even suffering can stop it. But it will attract opposition. It will attract opposition. And it will bring great pressure on God's people. And the response we have to give is really to fear God and trust him and walk with him and depend on him and believe that he will never let any of his promises fall to the ground. We are finishing. But let me say this. The agenda of the enemy is just one. Right from the beginning of creation, the agenda of Satan is just one. Let me put it in my own way. It is really to stop us from, from fulfilling God's purposes. Be fruitful and multiply. It is basically to deceive us, to destroy the relationship with God, destroy the relationship with one another towards seeing people who are like Jesus feeling the whole world. This agenda is quite simple. And thank God for the Bible because he is smart, but he's not smart because the Bible reveals that to us. And so we know it. It's to stop people from being added to the church, really. So he will deceive, he will give us messages that look like Christian, they are, you know, they look because they've got Jesus spies on it, and you preach it, everybody is excited, but it's actually not bringing anybody to the Lord. Satan likes that. He will encourage the church if we will excite ourselves and jump and dance. And then when it comes to really preaching the gospel, everybody falls asleep. Satan likes that. It's just to stop us from uh, knowing God's purposes for his church. He, he just wants people to continue to be selfish, inward-looking, using God as a means to an end, and that sort of thing. Telling them that you are suffering because God hates you, and all these lies that come from hell. And he will continue to push that. So look at the last verse of chapter 1. Then Pharaoh gave this order, after it failed with the midwives, he gave this order to all his people, the Egyptians. Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but every girl should live. Can you imagine? You know, River Nile is here in Africa. No, what to not River Nile is also a crocodile woman. So every Hebrew boy just throw them. This is the instruction. This is Satan. He will always want to come after church. But the rest of Exodus is actually going to show who is ultimately in charge, who is worthy of trust and fear. Exodus will tell us. So let me ask the question to finish. 
How do we know today? You sitting here and listening to me, how do you know today that God's promises to you, to us, to his church, won't fail? How do you know, even in the face of strong opposition or even in the face of death, how do you know that it will not fail? The answer is that because 2,000 years ago, Jesus, the Son of God, he was also targeted. He was targeted. He was hated. Eventually, he was killed. So this is really not new. He was killed. But there is a difference with his death. His death was not like the same Hebrew little boys who were born and thrown into the Nile and they are gone and nobody really remembers. It's, it's almost like it accomplished nothing in human thinking. When he was targeted and hated and came after and whatever God's purpose was for him, Satan sought to crush right from the very beginning when, when, when Herod heard that a king has been born, he sent into Bethlehem. Kill every son who is two years or under. Why, what was he doing that for? Because he was targeting the son of God. Here is his death because he eventually died. His death was that in and through his death and his resurrection, all of God's promises will be fulfilled for us. How can we be sure that every one of God's promises will be fulfilled because Jesus died? And his death has opened the way that those who believe and come to him by faith, every one of God's promises which he has made in Jesus will be ours in him. And this is his promise. If we turn to Jesus, ultimately he's going to free us from every form of slavery. Especially slavery to sin and death. Slavery to Satan. That's why Christians who are in Christ, people who are in Christ cannot be afraid of Satan. Slavery to the system of the world that, that is opposed to God. God redeems. And it is through this son who was targeted by the rulers of the day, by the system of the world and religi religion of the world. And yet, God fulfills his promises in and through him for us. For us. Christ was raised from the dead. No forces of hell could keep him. It was the same way that nothing could stop God fulfilling his promise, including the death of his son who goes into hell and death bows. And all the forces of darkness. And in him we are free. You can be free. You can be free from any form of slavery if you turn to Jesus. In his death is the fulfillment. In his resurrection is the fulfillment of all the promises of God fulfilled in him. You can have access to him, life. You can be under God's rule and God's blessing of abundant life in the new creation. This life is not all there is. There is more to this life. There is a life to come. If you believe and you fear God and put all your hope in Jesus as Lord, Savior, you will be free. You will be free indeed. And you will be in the new creation. Let me pray for you. Let's pray. Our Father, so we 
we beg you that you will take your word that we have in the Bible and by your spirit take it and drive it into every heart here every heart that is represented here fathers mothers sisters brothers children meeting upstairs visitors guests whoever I know there is opposition going on in our heart. You are calling people to submit to Jesus and be free from sin. And yet we oppose you because we fear what we might lose. Because we are proud. Please have mercy. Let all the benefits in Jesus be ours. So give us Jesus. Jesus, please enter into hearts and save us from slavery.